0: Welcome to New Books and African Studies podcast. I'm your host, Susan Thompson of Colgate University. My guest today is Sean Jacobs. He's an associate professor of international affairs at the New School in New York City. He is also the founder and editor of the website Africa is a Country. It's a blog of opinion, analysis, and new writing on Africa. He's written a new book, Media in Post-Apartheid South Africa, Post-Colonial Politics in the Age of Globalization. It's published by Indiana University Press in 2019. In his book, Jacobs makes a potent argument about the role of the media in its many new and old forms as an arbiter of belonging and citizenship in our information-saturated age. Using South Africa since the 1994 transition, quote-unquote, from apartheid to democracy as his case study, Sean analyzes and demonstrates the importance of not only understanding an ever-changing media landscape as part of any study of politics, but also how media shapes how public goods are made accessible to whom and how. Media in post-apartheid South Africa is also a study of how the processes and structures of colonialism mix with the discursive tricks of political elites, both during apartheid and since the transition in 1994. It is also a study of how the media shapes how south africans see themselves in advertising soap operas reality shows and online forums John welcome tom jacobs welcome to the new books network
1: Thanks. thank you for having me
0: tell me why this book and why now
1: um i mean i wanted so i've always been fascinated by the role of media in, in politics and, and i know we're going to talk a little bit about my background
2: mm-hmm.
1: um but I, I've always, for, for a while, the thing I wanted to study was to understand what is the place of media in politics and what's the place of media in political change. I, mean, I sort of come out of political science. Mm-hmm. And I thought South Africa presented a really good case study um, because I think it's like a sort of perfect storm where you have the coming together of the end of the Cold War, um, globalization, and a new country that sort of formed on... Um, uh, the basics of world democracy. So in in a context like that, how would this play out? I think on top of that, I wanted to write South Africa into the world. I mean, this is a sort of very uh, um, common response now by some people in humanities. I think most people like Mbembe and others talk in this way. But I wanted to write South Africa out of exceptionalism Mm -hmm. and write about it as just another, you know, kind of sort of ordinary country. Um, so one, not as exceptional um, in this kind of notion of like a rainbow nation with a successful transition, and I wanted to show how much more complicated that was. Secondly, I wanted to write about it as not separate uh or exceptional from the rest of Africa. And then thirdly, I just wanted to show like how deeply embedded media was in the kinds of things that were happening in South Africa. That to a large extent South Africa is it a highly mediated society, and we can, you know, we can talk about its history and the role of media, um, uh, particularly during apartheid and the end of apartheid and the transition. But I felt like that process was just accelerated after the end of apartheid, and I wanted to tell that story.
0: I think you did a, a really good job. It's a really um, well argued book. Tightly written. I noticed you um thanked your political science wife for her writing talents, but I can I can <laughs> I can feel you on the page as well. So what what is your background? How did you come to even become a professor in the United States? I can hear your South African accent. Um say more about your background before we move to the substance of your book. My own two cents is that you can't separate the analyst from the analysis. No, I, I agree
1: with you. This I I I wanted to say this first, but I forgot. Your inter- your summary of my book made me want to go say. Made me want to say this interview is over. Oh. I'm just gonna go home.
0: Okay, well, um, uh, brah, You but, wrote a uh, good
1: book. <laughs> no, it was like it's a really. Oh, that that sounds way better than what I what I think I did. But anyway, so I, as you said, I'm I'm from South Africa. I grew up. Uh, I was born in Cape Town. I grew up um, uh, during apartheid. I would say that the things that sort of I grew up very working class. My father was a, was a gardener um, uh, for his whole life, I think about 40 years, maybe. My mother worked as a domestic worker. But the reason I say this, it's not just, you know, hey, uh, the Olympics are suffering. Right. It's more that when I was a kid, my father, where he worked, he would take me uh, to to the this property of the this white people that he worked for. Bishop's Court It's like the, one of the richest suburbs in Cape Town. It's sort of close to the city center. Um, sort of on the edge of the mountain. Mm-hmm. And he worked for a Supreme Court judge, by the way, the guy who was the, the judge president of the Cape. And I kind of knew these people kind of intimately, so I would go to the house on Saturdays. And the thing is, the servants had their rooms at the back, so like, you know, the, what they call the cookie, meaning the maid, and then the gardener which was just like that. And in this room, they were just, they, the, the, what this guy would do is he'd give my dad the newspaper once he was done with it, and I would, when I would go there on Saturdays, I would read, like, there's just, like, stacks of newspapers in this room and magazines. And occasionally he would, like, leave a book. And I think, but it was mostly the magazines and the newspapers that I sort of became obsessed about. And, and I think that kind of being introduced at that early age to kind of, you know, as a, I, I went there from probably when I was, like, five until I was, like, 14. I would regularly go on Saturdays unless if I was, you know, going to visit my grandmother in the rural area and so on. My cousin for like a weekend in another township and but the thing about it I really got got a sense of like the makeup of South African media that it was largely English and Afrikaans. It was a cartel that it was mostly interested in the issues um, the problems and the anxieties and the hopes of white South africans, and in between you'd get some other kind of news so like that that, that 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 encounter with media at that very young age I would say was was very much a founding very it heavily influenced me um and then when i got to when in you know, as as you grow up and you read south african south african media I mean, there's a society in which there is like one state broadcaster that dominates um both radio and television. there's other broadcasters, but they're broadcasting from like the former plants like one of them called bob TV and there's a radio station called capital Radio. In general, what you're getting is you get state media. So there's a lot of, like, blackout about the kind of, like, the world that you exist in, like, this world of the townships, you know, this world of Um And then I, I would say just beginning to read newspapers as I kind of got into my teens, you know, you'd start to read newspapers from other parts of the country because I would save money to go buy it. I also had another lady who was also a domestic worker and a friend of my mother. She would bring me the City Press on a Monday. And uh, from where she works, she would like take it she knew the, the this woman she worked for, she'd be like sort of telling i 'm doing it to this kid. so I'd read the city press, the report, and the Sunday times, and during the week, I read like the Burger the Burger, which means like citizen in English, but it's an, it's an old African newspaper, and I would read um uh the Cape Times, which is a preeminent liberal newspaper in Cape Town so just that I was always kind of around news newspapers I was always fascinated by what I saw on television and when I got to the University of Cape Town, um, I wanted to like, you know, work in media. But there was no there was no media degree and I studied political science mm-hmm. and I also studied languages. I actually studied Afrikaans in a University. That's another story about Africa that's actually my home language, Afrikaans, which has its own kind of complex creole history. And you know, I encountering that uh, that sort of people making media in Afrikaans who were not white when I was at university was I think very Quite seminal. I mean, this you know, not this is not to say that there weren't black media in Africans under apartheid, or that there weren't media, uh, black media or media presented by left wing or black people under apartheid. I'm not saying that. It's just like the kind of media that's available to you. So at university, I really sort of. Encountered um, like uh, I started working for the newspaper, the student newspaper, Varsity, which is sort of lefty newspaper. The student media at the end of apartheid next to what was called alternative media. This is like South, the New Nation, the Weekly Mail. You know, the kind of the left media that openly identified with the with the uh, the anti-apartheid, or if you wanted to call it, we used to call it the people struggle. Mm-hmm. So working, working in like a student paper and writing, you know, um, which is also kind of a sort of left liberal student paper. After that, I briefly worked at a, at a, at a newspaper. I actually worked for an African newspaper. And I also wrote for, as a freelancer, um, for the city press. And then by the time I got to university and I, I ended here, I sort of, I got a scholarship. I came to the U.S., the Fulbright. Um and I went to Northwestern and up until that point I hadn't really I could, I didn't really like tackled media as an academic, like, you know, writing about it as a researcher. I always just used to write about politics. Um and it was while I was at Northwestern in you know, at like the north northern suburbs of Chicago that I kind of um really got interested in media and I wrote a MA, my MA thesis for political science, I actually wrote it about the introduction of satellite T V in South Africa. And I would say it was it was that's the moment when for me it it I began to sort of seriously think about media as a as a political object, you know, studying media, thinking about the role of media in South Africa's political transition. I had another fellowship after that at this, uh, the Shorenstein Center at Harvard, where I wrote about um uh controversy around um uh, sort of race, um the arms when, what was then known as the arms deal in South Africa, um and media. But I would say it was really going to Northwestern. Um, and beginning to take classes with, with sort of media scholars, like, you know, political scientists who study media. Uh, like Ben Page, he was actually quite, I, I would say he had a big influence on me. Manju Pendakur, who, who, who was a film scholar, I think he ended up in Canada. So those were kind of, that's the point where I'm beginning to sort of, um, I, and also coming in, when, you, when I came to the U.S. in the mid-90s, there's a, there was always like a really vibrant culture of media criticism in the U.S., like sort of, analytical criticism of the media, which was absent in traffic, and there was some. Um, but up until that point, I, I wasn't really, you know, very familiar with it. I started reading most of the, uh, so, sort of, retroactively I read, like, sort little work of Thomas Sally who, um, who were at the university, then the University of Natal. Uh, but I would say, really, that moment, going to Northwestern, is when I sort of seriously began to think of media as, as an academic, you know, discipline or subject, media studies, political communication, yeah.
0: What led you to study your home country, though, South Africa, rather than being energized and thinking about the United States?
1: I mean, maybe there. So, so I always criticize people for like that kind of thing. Well, in, in the West, Westerners will go study some other place, right? And there's a kind of, of uh, it might just be curiosity. It could be solidarity, right? Yep. Um, But there's often something about the way that the academic discipline, uh, the academy is structured, which is that. You know, and, and this is like you know, it dates back to colonialism and the you know the way when universities started and how universities went to like say Africa, Asia on the back of these colonial projects. So you know whether it would be mostly anthropology and history. So I get I get that that's that that's part of I did some of this because of like maybe I felt like I could only study South Africa because I'm South Africa, I'm a black person from South Africa. I can't study the US. I actually did initially one of the first things I wrote. At Lord West and, and Ben Page actually writes it. I mean, I don't know if he remembers this, but I wrote about the Million Man March, and I actually wrote this sort of very critical paper on what I then considered the very conservative of politics of that march. You know, like that, that it wasn't—it it was sort of like um, individualizing problems among uh, among African Americans or the Black community in the U.S. Um, but I really—I think—I think it's also like a historical duty. I mean, I'm of a particular time in South Africa. I grew up under apartheid, as I said it was a much more of like a political commitment to transform South Africa, my generation, because, you know, we, we are the ones who kind of like, we can taste freedom and then live it. Um, people were slightly older than me. That's maybe something they they could not think. Mm-hmm. And I think I was really sort of preoccupied or occupied with the idea of like, how do you, how do you think a way through this, you know, from a to something more than liberal democracy. And so I think I, I was really, you know, I, like like any young South African, I suppose, when you're young, something you are really obsessed about, um, and I think I, I I was just sort of I wanted to write about South Africa and I cared about South Africa and I was politically you know uh, involved in in what was happening in South Africa. I think it's mostly that that, that that drove me to do that. Yeah, and as a scholar, I would say I had I had studied you know political science, I studied South African politics, and I felt. Uh, I actually came. I also studied mostly at the time when people did that sort of what they call transapology, the transition scholar in political science, where you you try to understand um, the move from uh, autocratic states to democracy in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. And a lot of that stuff focused on formal political systems, or they focus, you know, political parties, uh, leadership, um, the state, etc. And I was kind of thinking a lot about. Well, there are other informal ways that politics happen, away from these formal structures. And and I did that for my dissertation. I looked at economic um, uh, how economic policy was constructed in South Africa during the transition. Um, and then when it was done, I kept thinking to myself, but most South Africans, the way that they are experiencing the changes in South Africa is not, is not necessarily through these formal channels. I mean, they don't – maybe now in South Africa it's different that people watch the sort of – the parliamentary debates because of the EFF, the Economic Freedom Fighters in South Africa, but at that time um, I felt that most South Africans just, you know, going around South Africa, like you, you'd sit in people's houses around sort of prime time, and you'd notice that everybody's sitting down to watch a soap opera, and particularly two soap operas, and also soap operas that were that were local, um, and that, curiously were were on a public. Broadcaster, in other words, on a state-funded broadcaster, and that was funded by the state. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't propaganda. It was still like a soap opera with all the conventions of a soap opera. But in the soap opera, you could see being reflected back to these people how this country was changing. Secondly, I was also noting that the advertising in South Africa was overly political in the way that it engaged with how South Africans were changing. And I was thinking, like, this this was just fascinating me. And nah, I'm not going to say no one was writing about it. Some people were writing about it, but sometimes they were writing about the, the, the format or they would write about, you know, one or other aspect like uh, race or how does race manifest in it or class. Well, not necessarily class, actually gender. And I was like, you know, there's something here about how uh, the South African, the, 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 what do you call it? Like the, 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 the terms of the South African transition as one well of the liberal democratic transition, um, is being kind of reinforced, played out in these in these ads and in these soap operas, and I think I should write about this. I think that's where that comes from.
0: Yeah. It's a really great answer because I think your book works because you are of the place, and you know when we talk about how the academy is structured and so on, that's a different debate, but your book, to my mind, is really informative and educational and a serious piece of scholarship because of the way you frame it. And this exceptionalism... Thing about South Africa that you noted at the outset to me leads to how you understand the whole process of media, you know, from the time that Mandela was released, um, all the way up to um, you know today, and the way it plays out in reality shows and through M what's it called? Um, what's the multi choice uh, and things well, like this? Mnet, yeah. yeah, Mnet. That's what I wanted to say. So I think the way you write about the Afrikaner um, sort of ideology. Propaganda politics can only really be done by someone like you, Um, you know, a South African who's serious about scholarship, but also serious about um, methodology and about, you know, being a public scholar. And I think that's my next question. Your book is, of course, six substantive chapters, an intro and a conclusion your history chapter on Mandela, the Mandela ch- ch- channel. Sorry, can you walk us through that? What's going on as a basis as we transition from the apartheid state into the so-called free South Africa?
1: Right, that's a that's a good question. Actually, when you were when you were sort of just describing kind of this, you know, the the, the role of somebody who is a, sometimes the, not that we want to like create a special character category for that person and give them a prize, mm-hmm. but I get your point that it's nice if somebody is embedded and understands like some nuances. And, and a lot of this was, I, I lived this stuff. I was there for it. I was kind of, I was also coming of age. I was kind of, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of in writing this book, a lot of it is in the, is just me talking to people uh, interviewing them and not necessarily in a sort of conventional way, often like taking it down and crediting them for it because sometimes they didn't, they they didn't agree. It just happened that I was sitting with them and we we're watching something and they're saying something. I went, oh, but but in this in this chapter you're referencing. I start actually with this moment um, in, in in February on February uh, um, uh, 11th, 1990, which is when Nelson Mandela walks out of prison, and I sort of you know tell the story of how I'm watching this. Uh, with my family, um, you know, I was I was actually a student at the University of Cape Town mm-hmm. at the time, but I'm, it was it was school, all, it was the break, and I was like at, at, our, at our house and watching it on the Sunday afternoon with my family. I'm like seeing this play out in, on television, and how this is like the first, um, in a way, almost like a, a, a mass, like this 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 is notion of what's called the media event. And in South Africa, this was kind of like the first kind of mass media event. Now, in the book, I also mentioned that this is not the first time in, in, on South African television where there was a media event, because under apartheid, um, one of the things which you often, again, you don't see this in writings about South Africa, because often people probably went there and they thought, oh, it was just dictatorship, and it was a blackout, and there was nothing on TV. Well, actually, when you were growing up under in, in, in apartheid, South Africa, the funerals of, of of like, you know, whoever was a white state president would be broadcast live on TV and you would experience wow. it like a media event. Mm. Uh similarly, like, you know, the opening of parliament their Parliament, so everything about a position. It, it's very difficult sometimes. Because because you know, there's a way in which you think which we think and talk about South Africa for the absence of media, but there was a presence of media but for whites. But and the rest of us had to also like live. The rest of us had to like watch it. There were other things that they would do, which I think also before 90, before 1990, which were media events. If you think of like, uh, there was an obsession in South Africa with the British, uh, the British royal family, really. And so you would have like, I was in school, I think I was maybe like eight or seven years old when Lady died. Uh, what's Lady Di- Diana, whatever, and child got married. So they oh, would, wow, okay. They would, they would, they would uh, there'd be no school, they would you'd come to school, <laughs> they would suspend the classes and teachers would bring a TV into the classroom, and you would watch this. I don't know why we're we watching this, especially also partly because Afrikaners at that time, since they were running the state, um, they, that, you know, and they they had this whole narrative about their, which I discussed in the book, you know, in this kind of um, this uh, conflict with with the British, right, over the Anglo War. yet in the school, everybody's like watching this wedding. Of of, of a British a British Prince um, and his new wife. But anyway, to fast forward. So what I'm trying to write in this chapter is to suggest that something profoundly changes in 1990. Is that you then you you move? It's still a state broadcaster, but the state broadcaster relaxes some of its control, and and, and they they show the, the 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 release of Mandela like live on television. And I'm the curious thing is that they try to control the whole thing. So they control the feed, and it's their uh, announcer, their commentator who's describing Mandela's release. You know, who's, who's providing context, including to CNN and to American broadcasters. I then also tell the story of like how Mandela comes across to these people. You know, to most journalists, as somebody who's like out of time. Like he's not of this time. Uh, he's sort of awkward. Um, he, he's Answers are slow. He talks like in a style that reminds me of the nineteen fifties. But I do make the point that it's not entirely true that he's like a novice to this to the media world because he he understood that stuff in the nineteen fifties when you know when they were fighting um, against apartheid, in which he was he would appear in like uh, uh, glossy magazines that were aimed at, at the African population. As I mentioned at the beginning, there were black media, so particularly like Drum magazine. He also understood that in the in the way that he would appear in public, like dressed as a chief, or in the way that he created like a myth around himself while he was kind of in hiding. He called himself the Black panel. So yes, I agree that this was not entirely new, but there was something about the the the, the, the way that this, 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 you know, the whole of South Africa was witnessing this event. There was now the emergence of not necessarily one public, but the semblance of one public. And then further to that, the state also, by the way, at this point, begins to, the apartheid state, or would be, would, be, would become the national party. Um, well, it is the national party, but you know, after independence, they would they would just be like another political party. But they also understand the power of media, that they need to try and control this event around Mandela. Um, and then I say that there's a series of other media events that I think sets up this world that I'm going to describe in this book, which is, one, is the death... Um, the murder, actually, of Chris Hani, who was the most, the second most popular um, ANC leader, um, you know, both both, uh, kind of later parties in the 1980s, but particularly in the early 1990s, where 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 you know there's all this violence, political violence, which is partly um, the state is sort of uh, aiding and abetting it. Um, but he he gets murdered by by a conspiracy of right white right wingers. And then the key thing about this story is his whole funeral is live on television. Like we just watching his funeral. Uh, like you, you're just sitting at home and there's his funeral. And it is actually a massive ANC rally. And actually one little anecdote about it is I kept a tape of that funeral for many, like a while after that, my until my mom was like, yo, come get this tape from my house, whatever. <laughs> um, and then the third thing I think that I described is um, that, at that event of, of this live broadcasting of Chris Hani's uh, funeral, um, after that there is this kind of you know outbreak of, of political violence, and the government, the, the governor of the cleric is unable to sort of you know if you want control this violence or to quell this violence um, because you know I mean I remember marching being on being on like a highway in Cape Town and marching from Langa to central Cape Town, being part yeah. of these marches um, and. The interesting thing is, like, the government then asked Nelson Mandela, can you go on television? This is an extraordinary moment in South Africa's political history, and can you say something to the people? And so you have this moment. I mean, I'm not sure if I, just, if I get it across in the book. You do you, minutes, do, you the do, you do. Nelson Mandela appears on TV like he's the president behind a desk, sitting there with like an ANC flag and literally talking to the nation. So in that moment, De facto becomes the president. And I describe, and I'll move on quickly as I describe two other events that I think are crucial to this, to, to cementing this kind of new political environment. One is, of course, the, the Rugby World Cup of 1995, which is, you know, uh, fiction wise, well, it's really fiction to be honest, in Invictus. And then I think the last one is the Truth and, uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission which goes on between 1996 um, uh, and 1998, which is this sort of attempt to reckon with the, with the, you know, the political violence of apartheid. I mean, you know, it, it was really an attempt for um, uh, people who had committed atrocities, like whether, whether they were agents of the state or the security services, or whether they were um, freedom fighters, they would come and they would, they would ask for, this was like a deal between the government and the, and the ALT around amnesty, but of course, like most of these things, uh, there's a, there's a there's a formal intent, and then there's you know what happens to an, an event or a, or a series of events like like in the public, like how people invest in the and, and so the TRC becomes something else, right? It becomes like a church. It becomes like uh, with, with Desmond Tutu who happens to be a priest, and then he's um, his vice chairman is also a priest and not a white uh, white uh, liberal priest called Alex Borrain. And then they take this truth commission into a different direction. And the key part of this thing is there's a TV program that was associated with this truth commission. On, on a Sunday night, um, there was this thing called TRC Update um, that everybody would sort of watch. Like the the figures for this thing was really high, and everybody would just watched this show. They also would would broadcast this live on the radio. And I, the, for me, what I what I'm trying to suggest is like those series of events. You know, creates like a different kind of political environment. And the last big point about all of this is, there's also a set of reforms that happen to to the media landscape. You see the the state sort of gradually uh, relinquishing its control of particularly broadcasting. So you have, you know, you're moving away from like a state broadcaster, and you have uh, the emergence of like a public broadcaster with a with a, with a board. Like there's a, the a, the state has to give up the right to control the the the, the broadcaster, which you know most South Africans are watching. This. That's where most people are watching. Later on, watch the soap operas on, um, and so so those become like it, it's impossible for them from now on to control that kind of media, and it it creates more space for for our media, you know, our television in particular begins to operate in South Africa.
0: Well, it's so interesting. And just a quick aside, I also watched Charles and Diana's um, wedding in my Canadian classroom. And I don't know why we did, but um, we did. So that's been sticking in my mind since you said it. I don't know what the politics are there, but there's something going on. But I also think you said something really, uh, I mean, all of what you said is a great summary of your book. This idea of relinquishing control is really interesting because we know of the ways in which um, the National Party, the apartheid state, had thought of television as the devil's play box. And it was really managed in a careful way. And then you have this sort of like fast opening with the TRC being a public spectacle and something made for TV, as you note in your text. And of course, Mandela um, with the rugby and wearing the jersey and everything that you describe in your chapter What does this opening and this relinquishing of authority and control pave the way for? We have soap operas, we have multi-choice, we have the TAC, all sorts of different things that you discuss in subsequent chapters. How do they brand the nation after this control's been relinquished? Right. Just just
1: sort of uh, before I answer that, like one of the things that I probably not going to articulate as well, Mm -hmm. but I think what else, there's another thing that I don't think, I don't think the people who control the process, whether it's the people, those, those in the state or the, or within the, let's, let's say the broad liberation movement, I don't think they understood what they were, like these reforms that they had sort of agreed to, or uh, I don't think they always understood like where it would go because the ANC, by the way, was also always skeptical of media themselves. Okay. The ANC wasn't, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a liberation movement um, that with a very sort of top-down structure. It was very secretive. It operates, you know, under, under, under. Uh, it's in exile. It's constantly being spied on. So it's not like the most open movement. Actually, there's been a lot of writing where where people have suggested that the ANC um, never really, uh, except for sort of these concerts that they ran around Mandela, you know, or. The sort of going to the UN or uh, asking for sanctions against South Africa, they didn't really necessarily like have like a media strategy. That wasn't like, they, they it wasn't, that wasn't their style. Um, so, so one quick, uh, the sort of quick point that I, I just kind of thought about that is I don't think they always understood like what they were unleashing, like, you know, what, what is the kind of political culture um, that would come out of an uh, opening, opening up or relinquishing control. Both, I think, the, the, the government, but the ANC one is more complicated because it's also another set of things that I don't want to get into now, which is about the relationship. I think at that time between a movement that had been in exile that was top down coming back into a country where the last decade of apartheid was characterized by mass movements, right? Not necessarily people who wanted to be controlled. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. Uh, and with a whole bunch of stuff were happening in South Africa, separate from politics. Like there's the emergence of like new musical forms. That is both kind of uh, uh, progressive, or but also at the same time is, is linked to consumption, you know, which is just like yeah. it, it, it's uh, it's aspirational, and it's not necessarily gel with kind of the politics of the ANC and for South Africa. So there's like a ton of so 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 I think it's also the side that I think often doesn't get talked about is how how also how the ANC or or the democratic movement had to deal with these kind of changes. So, but you're right. What I try to do in the book is um, in, in the in, the, in the, the, the 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 first kind of substantive chapters after describing kind of this new kind of media environment is to look closely at like two sets, like right, Two sets of phenomena. One is around advertising. Um, and I actually, that's, that's, the, that's the chapter I like the most because the stuff that you would find when you look at South African ads would just kind of blow your mind. It was just like how... How political they were, and I and I mentioned that there are other instances. I know in Canada where you have the the Molson's ads, right? The one about national identity. Yeah. Um. You have some. You had the ad here during the election. I think in uh, when, when I think it was either the first or the second election of Obama. It was around the bailout in, in Detroit, and you had like uh, I think Clint Eastwood is in the ad, um, and it was like a, and the Republicans were mad about it, and then sort of then the the companies would dial back like the political content, the content, sorry, of these, of these ads. And I think in the Canadian case, it's more tongue-in-cheek. It's like a joke, right? Nobody's taking the Molson's ad seriously. In South Africa, however, my suggestion was like from the start, was very clear, was that, you know, it's an ad. We, it's about it's selling you a product, but it, it's actually selling you, product sells you ideas. They, don't, they, they sell you sets of values. Um, And these things are taken seriously in South Africa. And I do so by looking mostly at like uh, ads that are that are around beer, beer ads in South Africa, and particularly ads for um, Casa Lago, which is like the most popular brand of beer in South Africa. And beer, by the way, in South Africa, happens to also be a cartel um, linked to kind of the introduction of racial capitalism in South Africa. Um, And then secondly, with the transformation of that public broadcaster. So with the beer ads, you see it being tied to sports um, and the construction of kind of like you know a new idea of the nation, um, and I and I go through it. I mean, I, I, it, you know, there's it's sort of lots of nuances um, to the kinds of ads uh, uh, that they make, and I think the the one that I thought was from me quite striking is what happens to to how the public broadcaster tries to brand itself. So this public broadcaster, which is uh, and in the book as you I think we sort of quickly mentioned that. You have this uh, uh, a private, the, the, the private state, um, the, the the ministers, you know, the white parliamentarians. They're not very fond of television, right? They think of it as a, as a as a as a medium that would undermine their project, that would build consciousness among like regular black people. I mean, they got all kinds of grotesque fantasies what would happen if a black man would see a white woman on TV and so on.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but what is interesting is is that public broadcaster that then tries to uh rebrand itself. And in the beginning, you know, it, it, in line with what was going on in South Africa, it rebrands itself in a sort of rainbow mold. The mold, the idea of the rainbow nation, right? This kind of country with different colours, blah, blah, blah. And so it runs this ad this kind of ad campaign of something called Simunye in Zulu, which means we are one, and I kinda of discussed that and the function of how that played out. And then there's also people within the SAPC who begin to think, well, that's, you know, that doesn't reflect the reality of South Africa and they try other kinds of campaigns, um, but there's a backlash against those campaigns. And then they abandon them and they go back to this sort of this kind of celebration of the individual celebration or kind of neo um, uh, neoliberal ethos. And then the second, Kind of medium that I discussed within the book is then the soap operas, and I also think that the, that was also just—I mean, I—I—I I, I, I knew about that more, I—I—I I, I experienced that more, um, you know, being in South Africa at the time and watching, sitting next to people watching generations and going like, "Why am I watching the soap opera?" or watching Isidingo, um, but that was quite striking to sort of uh, go and visit with commissioning editors. Uh, working for the for the uh, the public broadcaster for the SABC, sitting down with the the production companies, the people who run the production companies, and asking them these you know asking them to tell me more about what they intended, why they made these series, and the two things that emerge, and I discussed them at length in the chapter. Is one, you have this idea of um, an, an aspirational viewer. So one of these shows, Generations, which is an all black advertising agency, which was an unlikely thing in South Africa. Um, in the sort of early to mid-1990s, um, run by black people. It's like any other soap with all the other intrigues of, of, of the stuff you see on the soap, you know, people sleep with this one or in love with their brother's wife, blah, blah, blah. So that kind of stuff was happening in the soap opera. But more than that is this kind of idea of, uh, uh, you know, a new kinds of of consumption, new kinds of values that are being uh Communicated via via this TV series um, called Generation, and then the other TV series, which is called Isidingo or The Need, um, uh, in which you have a story taking place on a on a, on a mining in a mining town, um, and there and the show is is I think like a microcosm of what is happening to South Africa because there's a strike at the mine. And the white owner feels that to resolve the strike, you could do two things. One is to get the workers to buy shares into the mine. And the second is to the black man as the CEO. So, I mean, it's just, if you're not, you know, some of the stuff is just, uh, what is the, I'm trying to, it's on the skin. You know, it's so, it's not very deep. But it worked at the time in South Africa. And both of those series ran for a long time. And they were, you know, they had the highest number in South Africa. And through them, I just want to say the Isidingo one, its tagline was one nation viewing. So if the one is like people had to be aspirational, the other one was like to begin to think of yourself as one nation with all these competing uh, ideals, problems, and visions of what could be another South Africa.
0: Tell me this, though. So you we are talking about soap operas, black owned, um, the way that South Africa is represented through these shows to South Africans, but also to the rest of the continent, as you note in your book. What about um, the Afrikaner online forums? What's happening there? Your chapter six is a pretty interesting take, I think, in contemporary politics as well. It really shows us about the, to me anyway, the reemergence of white nationalism.
1: Yeah. I mean, with that, I was trying to, so the last two chapters, right, is about, um, one It's about, uh, the AIDS movement in South Africa and the other one is kind of about, um, Africana political identity. Right. And what I was really, uh, so what I wanted to do was like, yeah, I want to show you, you know, these forms of popular media and how politics is manifested through it. But I also was interested that I think the internet was emerging, um, as a space for, for, um, Uh, the reconfiguring of identity or the the reassertion of identity and also for spaces in which people could articulate political demands, but not just, it wasn't like, Oh, you would do just doing the, you know, the sort of where you study the internet, it just happens on the internet. No, it was linked to like, you know, actual um, social movement. Um, And I think I was struck by the, 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 on the one hand, I was like, okay, um, you could, you could, you could write a book in which you show, oh, look, the internet is, you know, becoming central to South African politics, and you could be optimistic and kind of just write about um, kind of what is happening to the AIDS movement in South Africa, right? That the AIDS movement, which, by the way, is the only, from my estimation, from the, there was a lot of protest movements in South Africa that started sort of in, at the end of Nelson Mandela's uh, term as president, um, and then a host of them came about, around, you know, basic human rights. In South Africa, they call them new social movements, but they really demand kind of old rights, you know, because the way we think of new social movements um, is around sort of identity issues, uh, later on, you know, the the, the, the the struggles for gay rights, the struggle the AIDS movement, you know, et cetera. But in South Africa, these were around electricity and water and housing. And then interestingly, next to it was the AIDS movement, but the AIDS movement did a really good job in South Africa of connecting those, those kind of basic human rights, education, health, housing, et cetera, with 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 both well their struggle which was around drugs and so on and around sort of identity politics. And it would it would have been it, it makes sense to have written about that and I think that would have been fine. But I was struck by the fact that something else was happening. And I wanted to understand like what was happening to white politics. Like how is white politics operating in this new kind of environment? And I and it struck me that the most connected populations in South Africa after the end of a private, or if you want to say with the introduction of the internet, because of their income levels, because of their access to electricity, you know, because of the infrastructure that they inherited from a private, I had to look at what white South Africans were doing. Um and it is true in South Africa that the most you know, given the East of South Africa and the way that Africana nationalism or Africana political identity manifested itself, that I had to study like um look at look at what was going on in the Afrikaner community. Because up until then, they had controlled the state. They had uh, uh, used the universities, uh, the schools, the the, the 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 sort of there was a media, the auxiliary media of this project, right? So the whole this company called Nasper, which is now known as Media Twenty uh, Four, which has the biggest stake in Maldives. And most of its business actually isn't anymore newspapers, but it's about it's sort of the. Um, a uh, thing called Tencent, which is in China, it's kind of a, a you know where you buy and sell stuff online.
2: Mm-hmm. But anyway,
1: that company um, was very prominent, right, in in, in controlling and and, and and directing like how white South Africans understood what was happening to them. So I wanted to look like what happens? What happens if you lose power? Where and and, and actually particularly if you lose control of the state, if the state's the space in which you reproduce identity. Where would you now reproduce identity? And that led me to sort of like look at African identity and try to understand like what happened to African identity. Now, in the book, I'm not saying that Africana, the, 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 the the people that I'm describing or discussing they not they may not they may not represent the 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 uh, the majority of Africano opinions, right? Or the plurality of African opinions, but they are certainly the most vocal and they, they set the perimeters of what is permissible um, uh, or what is desirable for, Afri, for Africana politics. And I think the crucial point that I'm not, again, I'm not sure if this came across, but I, that one of the arguments that I wanted to make was, whereas before the, the, the Africana media company um, would, would play a more direct role in shaping what would happen to Africana identity, now they were in a much more symbiotic relationship with these kind of, with, you know, identity entrepreneurs, if you want to call them that. Right. These people that were not necessarily uh, journalists, editors, thinkers, but were now these sort of popular figures, people that were musicians uh, or kind of uh, sort of fringe white nationalist characters, including somebody who was a, a former novelist, uh, and that they were beginning to save Afrikaner. And I wanted to sort of like tease out like what was happening. You know, how were they doing
0: it? Yeah. I thought that was one of, for my, um, sort of my political science brain, I enjoyed your Afrikaner chapter a lot. The whole book is great, honestly, but that chapter really does a lot of work, I think, in identifying who are the nationalists and what are they talking about. And for me, it was a really powerful way to end the book. And it leads me to, you know, we're getting to the end of our time together. I'm thinking about the broader implications of, you know, each chapter, but also your overall argument. How is your book post-colonial and what does it tell us about post-colonial politics? That, of course, is part of your subtitle, so I know it's on your mind. But the,
1: the short answer I was going to give this The sort of like, let me, get, let me run away from this answer. It was going to be like, I needed a title because I know post-colonial, <laughs> that's like a long and complicated um, debate. I think the the reason I call the book post-colonial is because I wanted to, as I said in the beginning, I wanted to think of South Africa not as exceptional, not as different, but just how to write how to write about it in a sort of more general pattern. It's a post it's a it, it, it was a colonial society. In mean, fact, it was a form of colonialism.
0: Absolutely. And so what
1: happens, you know? In this literally, what happens when there's no more colonialism? Now again, I'm not trying to say. That there's like this fundamental break in 1994, because I think if you read the book, I'm more su- I'm more suggesting that there's these kind of continuities, right, rather than, um, than a break. But I think what I'm I, I was sort of trying to like so outside of this book, I think in the conclusion, actually, I make this comment that there's a there's a lot there, 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 I write about this moment of Marikana, you know, when when the South African police shoot these um, 34 minors. We're just demanding like basic rights and basic forms of protection as workers. Um, is that at that moment South Africa sees us to be exceptional, and South Africa just becomes another place with the sort of problems of post-colonial societies. And uh, I think my the the, the 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 I'm not sure <laughs> I'm giving an answer because that's a difficult one. But I think what I was trying to do is like, how do you how do you how do you what comes after nationalism? What comes after apartheid? Like, what kind of, you right. know, what are the political terms? What is at stake? Uh, what are the kind of, you know, what are the things that, that Africans are going to fight about um, if they were going to construct a society that was not going to be apartheid? And, 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 and so I think that's, 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 where, that's why, in the end, it's funny you mentioned that the Africana chapter resonated with you because I think that was also me wanting to go back to write about politics again, and not just about media. I wanted to go back, I mean, politics is, media is also politics.
0: Right, of I course.
1: To write my, yeah, I want to write myself out of media studies in a way and go back to write about politics. And, you know, write myself out of the sort of the discipline, you know, this kind of the way we write disciplines um, and write myself back into maybe sort of more broader concerns about politics
0: yeah, maybe that's also why I appreciate it. I know I teach at an undergraduate institution. I don't have much access to graduate students, and students will cite post uh, will cite South Africa as an example of like post-colonial. Of course, they don't know what that means, so you have to push it. And it seems to me to be kind of a proxy in the American undergraduate mind for anti-racism, but they don't quite get there. And of course, your chapter, I think, is a really good teaching chapter for anyone you know any of our listeners who are thinking about this as well with their students white supremacy is a system it's not individuals per se so you must query both obviously but you can't right. you can't claim a thing to be white supremacist and not then not actually analyze and conceptualize those processes so perhaps it's just a state that you know returning to class and thinking about how to teach Americans who are concerned about you know, all sorts of issues in, in American society today. And I think, you know, that's one thing I really appreciated about your book. It's a South African case study, but it does a lot of intellectual work to teach us about why media as a political category, but also the ways in which it's mediated at the level of the citizenry and the me- at the level of the, the state, whoever the state may be at any given time. Yes, and with that in yes. mind, yeah, with that in mind, I'll ask you just two more questions. Which books or resources would you recommend to listeners who are keen to learn more about your your you know the subject of your book and what's inside um your mind right now
1: so in terms of uh, on this subject, I actually would say the book that ron um Crapole wrote about uh bill cosby's um uh Influence in, in in the sort of later part South Africa. Yes, and I draw on that in that chapter on the Mandela.
0: Yes, you do. After,
1: I really like the the kind of work that that came out of that. Um, and I and I the other one I would recommend is um, uh, if it's a media specific study, Hammond Bassam, who teaches at the University of Cape Town. He wrote a really nice book about tabloid media um, because that's something that I actually don't talk about in this book. One of the interesting things in South Africa probably in the second decade, um, of, of post-apartheid, you know, the sort of what is, what is the post-apartheid is that many of the sort of old media companies, as they sort of losing ground in the, in the, in the media space and print get overtaken by television and the internet, they started investing in tabloids, like tabloid newspapers, you know, like, uh, uh, uh I don't know how they call it. Then I a four, meaning the, the, the,
0: what do they call like them in the U.S.? Like Post. like the, like the New York Post. Or the National Enquirer.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Like, like uh, the Toronto star, star. Yes, of course. So <laughs> you have you have something like, uh, yeah, you have, uh, um, in South Africa, sorry, you have like the, the Daily Sun, the Voice, the Sun, these newspapers, a lot of the stuff in it, it seems very frivolous. And it, it's, a lot of it looks, uh, a lot of the stories about like, you know, uh, Tokolos, which is a kind of mythical figure, uh, really small that attacks people while they're sleeping. I mean, I can go and take while I have want. <laughs> but there's a lot of talk about Sangomas, which is, you know, diviners, uh, uh, seers, like uh, what, what people in the West used to call witch doctors. Right. So A lot of the reporting is about these sort of mystical things. But what's interesting about these papers is way more than other mainstream press, radio, television, whatever, they cover like really the the lives of uh, the lives of struggle of like regular poor people gangsterism the violence of it they don't always do, they don't they don't, they may not do it in a sort of oh this is how this stuff works at a structure or you know this is how you know the, 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 the kind of debate between how much individual and how much the structure they, of course they, they may not do that very simple uh, but what you do get out of it is like you actually get the reflection of like regu- the lives of regular people and so I like his work um, um, on tabloids. I definitely recommend it. I think it's called Tabloid. Oh, sorry, the book is called Tabloid Journalism in South, in South Africa. Oh, yeah,
0: I will put links to those two sources in the little blurb that will go online with the uh, so listeners can access it easily and quickly. My very last question is the classic one for academics. What are you working on now?
1: So um, right now, I mean, you know, right now I'm on sabbatical. So that's great. And, uh, but what I'm working on mostly is, and we talked about this at the beginning, um, one element of how I think about the academy, and also just like my own way of existing and being, is to do public intellectual work. That's been always part of what I do, and it's, it's always been a tension. When I started out, uh, some of the institutions I were at, they didn't appreciate that kind of work. But the place that I've been working at for the last decade, um, the new school, uh, in New York City, they actually value published intellectual work, and so while i 'm on on sabbatical, um the main project i've worked on is is a, a website that I started in in twenty two thousand and nine called africa is a country i i 've been on you know working blogging online and that website when you know when it started, people were particularly in the academy, that was a time when people weren't very friendly to, to like people writing online. it wasn't considered proper scholarship. But that website has grown, and, and there's a lot more acceptance for this kind of writing. I think that Africa, the country itself, has, you know, its it, you know its own profile has grown, including, including yourself. Yeah. You've written on this site. Um, and people take it seriously. I mean, whether you know, whether whether it's about trying to understand contemporary politics, whether it's, as, as I like to call it, looking for stuff, useful path, usable path, going right. back into the past, looking at political controversies, etc. So, uh, you know, an academic debate, and so I think, so that's the main project. We got some funding from Open Society Foundation, and we got some funding from, I got a fellowship while I'm on sabbatical by something called the Shuttlewood Fellowship. It became a Shuttlewood Fellow for the year. Oh, good, correct. was $100,000, so we, we've now put in a infrastructure, we have staff, and so this year I've been mainly working on that and trying to make it self-sufficient, but, and now finish with this I still do. I still think, and I still write. And I think the two projects that I would say are very close to me right now. And I think once, once the 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 the, the African country thing is sort of settled, and we you know we figured out the, the the systems and it's well oiled I think the two subjects that I want to return to is going to be very different from what I uh, from this uh, previous book. I think the one is I want to write uh, about. I actually am more interested in my own family.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: To use my own family. Uh, to write almost like a kind of popular history of Cape Town, because my family is sort of a mix of kind of uh, slaves who were brought from Mozambique, uh, kind of rural farm workers, most likely Khoi uh, that were that that were sort of commandeered into farm work by by um, settlers, um, whites, you know, uh, some of it uh, paternity that cannot be established etc. And so like that whole using that as a as a as a as a space to think about to think about South Africanness, if you want. To think about identity, to think about politics and particularly to think about it because as I said at the beginning, you know, sort of very working class. Not there's not a lot of documentation, like people didn't keep records. Right. But I'm really interested in exploring that. Um and, and see, you know, what comes out of that. Because in South Africa, identity is now being politicized, right? The Khoisan stuff. Uh, blackness, like all, right. these, all, all this sort of, or the Vico the black, uh, you know, all this sort of stuff that came out of these must fall and so on. And I think by, by thinking about all those things in the context of like real, like real experiences of real people, um, because a lot of writing about identity, I think is always about sort of very middle-class stuff. Oh, absolutely. Um, kind of interested in like these people that didn't think about this stuff. Like how did they live them? How did they, how did they try to exist? You know, Uh, They lived through all this trauma. My parents were subject to forced removal. So I'm kind of interested in, like, they don't talk about that stuff. They don't make special pleading for it. They probably should. But I'm just curious, like, how did they live this? Like, you know, like, and and trying to talk to family members and getting that. I've done some of it already. I've got some people doing some research for me. um, But I haven't really go fully into it. And then the last thing is I've always been a football fan, like soccer. Yep. And I want to write about football in a way that doesn't take the fun out of it. Um and I and I think writing about sort of the nineteen eighties in South Africa, which is which is stuff that's in this book, right, in that Mandela chapter is sure. is fascinating for me because that's when I became that's when my sort of fandom as a teenager, that's when, you know, that's when I became a football fan. And it's also like a moment in South Africa in which you can see football being mixed with like liberation politics and criminality and organized crime. Um, And I'm just kind of fascinated by this moment, this moment of kind of the connection between gangs and violence and football, Um, and because I was around for that. You know, I was was at the field, I played football, I'm not a very good footballer, but I was around for that stuff. And I'm trying to think about how do you write about the connections between kind of, you know, politics and violence and sports. And I want to write about the 1980s in South Africa. I think that would be one of the things I want to do.
0: Yeah, those are great um, projects. It also sounds like your two your two forthcoming projects are also linked to your political consciousness. You come into your own identity in your teens, and it shaped the current book, and it shapes your future work. I should say, too, Africa is a country has great swag. So, you know, go online, buy a T-shirt. It's a good time. They're very nice. Like, I can also... Um, I think we should probably wrap it up. Is there anything I mm-hmm. didn't ask you that you wanted to say, or?
1: Um, I think the one thing, I actually, it's great that I have this opportunity and it's not necessarily about the book, but I have to give props to everybody that has worked on, on Africa, the country, with me um, in the last decade, like whether you were on the editorial board, whether that person was contributing editor, or contrib- you know, a contributor like you or others. I think that the, uh, Success and the the impact of the project is as much my work as it's the work of all these other people, and I often don't get the chance to say that. Mm-hmm. So whatever opportunities I'm going to get from now, I want to make that point that that's that's a very that is that's actually how I approach the work because if the project can't renew itself, it's going to get you know go be a stale project, We're having old debates about things that nobody cares about. Right. But I think the ability of because there's all these people that we treat equally. I think it it helps the project like reproduce itself and reinvent itself all the time, yeah, and hopefully, in that way we can have like an impact on how people talk about um, politics, not, not you know not just in Africa but about Africa yeah.
0: yeah, and I can say for for myself, I've written a lot about beds, as you know, I now only like to write where there's an impact, and for me, that impact is Africa as a country, so i you know it's a great resource, and um you should be really proud of yourself. I think it is self-renewing and it, it means a lot to undergraduates. It means a lot to colleagues and it, it just me. it's a great project. Thank you, Sean. And thank you too for the talk. It thank was a, gr- a great interview. Um, thanks for your time. And yeah, I'll see you online.